when we refuse to come on his terms and we have a self-determined pursuit of things that are not God. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, these aren't just feelings that simmer, but that pass that boiling point and strike out at others. Rivalry, dissension, division, our selfishness that we put into action, where we quarrel, wanting to stake my claim even at your expense. Jealousy and envy, they're quite a pair when you put them together. Both of them crave what someone else has. In one of them, I want to take it for myself. The other one, I just want you to know the loss of having it. Feel that pain of losing it, because I don't get to have it. Drunkenness and orgies, those are seen when we recklessly give ourselves over in indulgence. And things like these. If only that was the end of all of our possible sins, right? But we know that it's not. And even if we've only given ourselves over in the pursuit of some of those things, and even if our pursuit maybe hasn't been as dramatic or ugly as someone else's, we know all too well how self-centered these things are, that that's the root of them. And it's a kind of sad and awful picture. And that is the natural state of mankind, and it's death. But praise God, we do not have to remain fallen. When we are in Christ, we are redeemed and cleansed and forgiven and set free and made alive and made new. These glorious things. When the Spirit breathes new life into a believer, that life actually brings with it a new nature. As Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not just some cleaned up version of my old self, but something that is truly new. And that new nature of the Spirit truly does desire the things of God, truly desires His glory, truly desires Him. Indeed, for believers, this news really is glorious. New creation is reality. New nature is true. But alas, we won't experience the fullness of that reality until we're glorified with Christ. For now, we walk in the midst of battle. Battle sounds really unfortunate, doesn't it? But we're going to stop for a minute and say, is it really unfortunate? What if there were no battle in the pursuit of the things of God? What would that mean? According to Paul, no battle would mean I was actually still lost. Because no battle would mean that I only had the desires of the flesh with nothing standing opposed to them. The presence of the Spirit within us is actually the whole reason why there's a battle. So praise God that we battle. Right? That's one of those expectations that we need to make sure we set correctly. The reality is that this presence of a battle should actually encourage us not discourage us because it is evidence of the Spirit's life or Spirit's presence, His life within our own lives. So the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. We know what the flesh desires, right? We've looked at that. But what about the Spirit? What does the Spirit desire? The Holy Spirit desires to glorify Christ, to sanctify us, to conform us to Christ. 
and he desires that we bear his fruit. And when he takes up residence in believers, he causes us to have those same desires. So in verses 22 and 23, Paul tells us what, that, what the Spirit's fruit consists of. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Such things as these. Such things as we see Christ live out as the perfect image of God. So let's think about those definitions of the fruit of the Spirit for a moment. And see how many of them are really about giving of ourselves. Giving out to others from what God has given to us. And we want to see how perfectly Christ lived these things out himself. So, love that acts for the benefit of others out of sincere affection. Joy, a glad conviction that all is well in the Lord. Not rooted in my circumstances, but in God. Such that Christ would endure the agony of the cross for the joy of reconciling us to the Father. From Hebrews 12, 2. Or a peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, 7. A peace that he gives us that's not like the world's superficial peace, John 14, 27. Patience, his patience in bearing with us as sinners, his generosity and kindness, his moral excellence, his complete faithfulness and loyalty, both to the Father and to us, his humility to come to us who are so undeserving, gentleness in dealing with us when he would be justified to be harsh, his complete self-control to do exactly what the Father had given him to do, and self-control not to lash out when others tried to provoke him. Jesus did all of these things perfectly, but we know that's not the case for us, right? In a sense, we really are a tale of two natures. On the one hand, there's my old sinful nature, and on the other hand, there's my new nature in Christ. The old nature of the flesh, it is centered on itself and is always seeking to take, to fill that emptiness of you. But the new nature in Christ is centered on God and seeks to give out of the abundance that we've received in Christ. So these two goals really are at odds. They are opposed. And in fact, the Greek word desire in verse 17 is actually a verb. So it actually is the flesh desires against the spirit, and the spirit desires against the flesh. So we kind of see that they really are opposed to each other. It's not like I have this set of desires over here and that set over there, and they just kind of passively wait to see which one I'm going to choose today. No, they actually are engaged against each other. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, he urged his readers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But it's not a fair fight. The Spirit does have the clear upper hand, and that is what gives us encouragement to walk through the battle. Verse 16 said, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. He doesn't say, walk by the Spirit, and you will never be tempted by your flesh. Right? He says you will not gratify the flesh. That word, gratify, is telesate. I hope that sounds familiar to where, like, you heard Jesus on the cross say, to telestai, it's finished, right? So telesate means to satisfy something, to bring it to completion, to carry it out to the end. So verse 16, 
What it does, it does not mean that we won't be tempted, but it does mean that when we submit to the Spirit, He always wins. And that will not is very strong. It's literally not ever, not at all. So again, not that the Spirit exempts us from temptation, but He enables us to not give in to that temptation. Whatever other means, tangible means, he may use as our way of escape, we think about 1 Corinthians 10.13, whatever tangible means he might use, ultimately he is our way of escape, looking to him, submitting to him, trusting him to enable us. So verse 16 gives us a great cause to be encouraged. The odds in this battle are not 50-50. The Spirit has a clear upper hand. Verse 24 gives us another reason to be encouraged. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So last night we observed those who belong to Christ Jesus refers to all believers, right? So in Christ, every believer has crucified the flesh. Some have read this verse in isolation, and they've ended up in a ditch off the side of the road with the wrong idea that salvation means the flesh is completely dead, so I never have to struggle against him. But they completely missed Paul's context. He is not all of a sudden contradicting himself, but he's giving us hope and encouragement that the battle will be won. So it's kind of interesting to note, back in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And that verb is passive voice. It's something that has been done to me. But here in chapter 5, he says, I, he's one who belongs to Christ, right? So I have crucified the flesh. That verb is an active voice. It's something that I do. And both are true, that it's done to us and it's something we engage in. We most frequently, when we talk about sanctification, we mostly frequently talk about the ongoing aspect. But there is also a passive part. That passive part of sanctification is just like our justification. It is completely done. Passively on my part, I have been declared righteous or justified and also made holy, sanctified in Christ. Christ has fully devoted us or sanctified us to God. And because that's true, through the Spirit, he works this out in us with our active participation to be people who are more and more devoted to God. Just like we talked about last night, the completed part of that passive part is the basis for the ongoing active part. So in verse 24, we actively participate in the ongoing crucifixion of our flesh and its desires. So why does it have to be ongoing? Jesus said in Luke 9.23, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. About this verse, John Stott said, we must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. And with our modern means, we, think, we tend to think of execution as like an instantaneous death, but that's not how crucifixion worked, right? Crucifixion was slow and agonizing. Uh, 19th century Scottish preacher John Brown has pointed out, and we've quoted this on one of the call-outs in your book. Um, John Brown said, Crucifixion produced death not suddenly, but gradually. And true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying it, that is the flesh, 
while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there until it expires. That's why Paul repeatedly commands his readers things like actively put to death what is earthly in us, Colossians 3.5, or put off the old self, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, Ephesians 4. The mortal wound to the flesh has surely been delivered, but the flesh hasn't bled out yet, so to speak. And until it does, which will only happen when we're glorified with Christ, it will continue to call to us to beg to be fed, to beg to be gratified, like verse 16 says. But here's our encouragement. The flesh has been crucified. Its demise is sure. It will still rage, but it cannot win in the end when we submit to the Spirit. So we can boldly and confidently tread it down underfoot and keep treading it down underfoot because we do not walk by our own strength, but by the Spirit. And that is what sustains our confidence as we engage in the battle for our Christlikeness. We know that the goal of our sanctification is to make us more like Jesus, and that's accomplished as we walk by the Spirit. We also know that we'll never be perfectly like Jesus in this life, and unfortunately, sometimes we're then inclined to view, to view that call to become like him as just this lovely aspiration that we admire without any real expectation that I'll be all that much like him. And that really is a shame. Instead, we need to realize that these two phrases, being more like Jesus and walking by the Spirit, are really saying the same thing. So we're going to take some time, as Kelly's mentioned, to look on Christ as our example, and we'll start by reflecting on his incarnation. Philippians 2 describes it this way. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself and was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself as a servant of God. When Christ came as the man Jesus, he did not stop being God, but he willingly chose not to rely on his divine power in order to live his faithful life as a man. In the scriptures, we see that Jesus lived according to the will of the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That means he's not just the picture of perfection to which we aspire, but he is, in fact, our perfect example of what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. And when we follow his example, we win the battle against our flesh. And right now, Julie, 